It's February 4th, 2010. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Nicholas Preby, who's an assistant professor of neurobiology at UT Austin. Hi, Nicholas. Hi. Around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. Michael Ferris. Hello. Todd Troyer. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So Nicholas has studied all manner of neurocomputation in V1. In his most recent work, he's made intracellular measurements of ocular dominance in vivo and found that small changes in synaptic input can hugely impact ocular dominance of individual cortical neurons, almost exclusively based on spike threshold, illustrating how sensory processing can be refined by intrinsic, often sensory-blind nonlinearities of individual neurons. One of the recurring themes of your work is that feed-forward models shape information by an intrinsic transformation in which spike threshold sharpens synaptic input selectivity. We generally think of feedforward models being tuned by spatial inhibition. Your models don't. Um, where does intracortical inhibition fit into your view of cortical computation? If you can give us a sense of, you know, of, of maybe some of the landscape of this idea of inhibition. So I think um, I am actively searching in my research for what it is that synaptic inhibition is doing. My perspective on on. On, on this is that uh, there are a whole number of behaviors I want to be able to describe the mechanisms that under underlie those behaviors using the simplest uh, description possible, the simplest number of mechanisms possible, and be able to define which behaviors actually require inhibition and be able to say, okay, inhibition is doing this specific thing. It, I have ne- not found that to be the case thus far. I do not know what inhibition is doing in visual cortex, but it is something that I think about uh, every day. Um, one of the things that, that uh, is a little bit strange that I, I think that we can all agree on in uh, across sensory cortex is that inhibition uh, is tuned in the same manner as excitation. That is, in, in primary visual cortex, preference for orientation uh, for excitation and inhibition is matched. In barrel cortex, um, the whisker that evokes the greatest amount of excitation also evokes the greatest amount of inhibition. In auditory cortex, the tones that elicit the greatest amount of excitation also elicit the greatest amount of inhibition. Why is that the case? I don't know why that is the case, but it seems to be a very common pattern that exists across cortex, and uh, we don't really understand um, what that could be for. It has previously been thought, I think there's a lot of evidence in the periphery, um, that inhibition is actively shaping selectivity. I think you can find that along the auditory pathway. You can find that along the visual pathway as well. But centrally, it doesn't seem to be shaping selectivity in the same way. It has some more subtle effect. I think people have primarily been thinking about inhibition in terms of a lateral inhibition, where inhibitory cells that have different tuning uh, affect uh, another cell. <clears throat> Uh, and, and, sh- and, and alter that cell selectivity. Um, and uh, that doesn't appear to be the case in, in cortex. So uh, there are many other things that inhibition could be doing besides this shaping or refinement of selectivity. One thing is it could be uh, shaping the timing of responses. So it might be the case, as has been found in both barrel cortex and auditory cortex, that inhibition follows excitation by a very short latency, like two milliseconds. And what that would do is tend to sharpen the time window in which, after a tone is delivered or a whisker is moved, that uh, an action potential can be elicited. So it could be refining in time uh, what the selectivity of the cell is. Um, it could also be used as what I would call a general gain control mechanism in which um, it's not tuned for any particular sensory inhibition, not tuned for any particular 
sensory uh, um, dimension, but only serves to act uh, to calm the excitatory input and sort of normalize the responses of the cell so there isn't runaway excitation. So what about the, the possibility that we're just being way dumber than the cortex? Um, in the sense that this selectivity happens, since we are. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the selectivity that you talk about are kind of the you know we start with the most basic stimuli, like a move a whisker, or do a bar, or something like that, and maybe most of the interesting selectivity is done at the periphery or. Uh, or so forth. So we're not actually challenging the cortex to do very much. So that's the one nice thing about visual cortex that separates it from, I think, both their cortex and auditory cortex, other sensory cortices. There is a computation that we can identify and recognize in visual cortex. Their orientation tuning emerges, disparity selectivity emerges, um, motion selectivity uh, emerges. And so, uh, whereas if you look at, at in auditory cortex, or if you look at in barrel cortex, all those selectivities are all evident in the afferent inputs. And so you can't just say, I, th- I think it's too easy to just say, well, you know, we haven't challenged the, the, the system. We know what those, we know that there's a computation that's being performed. And that's the real advantage of visual cortex. We know what that computation is. We can ask specifically, what does inhibition do? One of the great things about your work, and some other people too, is that uh, it illustrates this error that we make when we, uh, when we just look at action potentials extracellularly. So that when I was learning about the brain, I was basically viewing the brain, the neuron, as a statistical generator of action potentials. And so I thought, if I knew the, the temporal pattern of rate... I could guess everything else. And so if the rate went down, I would say there was less excitation or there was more inhibition. If the rate went up, I would say that there was less inhibition or more excitation. And so the problem just boiled down to figuring out whether it was less excitation or more inhibition or vice versa that was making the rate fluctuations. And, um, you know, there's still places uh, where that and uh, where that's done, where that kind of, uh, those kinds of assumptions are made. And uh, the hazard of that is illustrated in your work where you measure membrane potential and firing rate at the same time and show that they are drastically different. And uh, what, what, could you like summarize what you think is the lesson of, of that uh, sort of briefly? What do we, what do we learn about the, the spike-generating mechanism allows us to predict what the difference is going to be. Sure. I mean, I think that there are, are two things. First of all, we can, um, the, the nonlinearity um, that, that threshold imposes uh, is composed of, at least in the way I conceptualize it, it's composed of two very different things. One is, just what you were talking about, the biophysical spike threshold. Neurons have to depolarize to a certain memory potential to be able to, to reach threshold and elicit a spike. Um, and that's important. That transforms. It essentially makes uh, any two inputs more distinct uh, than they normally would be. Threshold always does that. But there's another aspect um, that creates this nonlinearity, and that is the background noise, the rumbling of the cortex, all of that background input. So actually, on average, for most of the stimuli that I use, I never evoke enough of a depolarization to reach the biophysical spike threshold. On average, that doesn't happen. 
you require this other noisy input as um, to be able to get the cell up to threshold and elicit a response. Uh, and so um, I think you have to consider both of those two different aspects. One of the nice things about recording intracellularly is that you get an idea about what, um, instead of recording from a whole population of cells, what I'm doing is I'm recording the result of a whole population of convergent inputs onto a, onto a cell. So you might think, if we were trying to understand how populations of neurons uh, work, we should record from a whole number of individual neurons, record their responses, and combine them in some way. And the nice thing about, mem- uh, about looking at intracellular recording is, is that's exactly what I'm doing. But instead of knowing about the identities, the functional identities or anatomical identities of all those presynaptic cells, what I'm observing is the summed input of all of those. One thing you know cells. about all of them is that they project, they all converge onto some neuron, whereas if we were just measuring them at random, we wouldn't know anything about their connectivity at all. Right? That's right. That's the that's the big advantage. But but the the price you pay for that is you don't know about their individual identity. So and that's the whole problem that Hubel and Weasel talked about. If we could understand what the individual inputs were, what the selectivities of, of those individual inputs are, then we would have uh, solved the problem of orientation selectivity a long time ago because we would have said, oh, those are different LGN relay cells that are actually synapsing on this cell. Um, but we don't know that, and um, that's a that it's it's an issue. I actually think it's one of the biggest issues in neuroscience. We know that the cell is transforming the input. We don't know what the inputs are. We can measure the outputs really well, um, but so we don't know what the inputs are, what the identity of the inputs, and we're trying to understand the mixing rule that cells do. And so for you, especially, you don't know which inputs are from the lateral geniculate and which are from other cortical cells. Well, we have and to. That's use- become a kind of polarizing. Uh, uh, idea for the visual cortex, what's coming from the thalamus and what's... Although you are able to separate that. We are able to separate it, but it's crude separation. I have to do something, you know, kind of extreme. I have to shock the brain and silence it, silence the cortex, and uh, I have this very narrow window of about 50 to 75 milliseconds in which I feel like I can get the LGN-only input. And it also limits the kind of question that I could ask because... um, Sure, I can ask questions about simple cells, which is what I talked about today. But if I want to ask a question about how complex cells are formed, I can't shock the brain because then I will get nothing. I, I, can't, uh, the, I can't actually understand what cortical computation is actually being uh, So being in done. the period after one of those stimuli, when the cor- all the cortical cells are not firing, they're not firing because they have very powerful inhibition. Is that right? That's right. It's very so that means that... Re- all excitatory responses you see from the thalamus ought to be reduced in size or somehow modified by the inhibition anyway. Is that true or so is it not expected? There are a couple complicating factors. One is maybe um, by shocking the cortex, I'm affecting the LGN um, because there's a recurrent circuitry that goes back to the LGN. That's been recorded and there are controls that can be done uh, to show that that's not a problem. And one of the one of the ways that we can make sure that that's not a problem is only by... Um, shocking the uh, superficial layers um, so that the layer 6 cells are less affected than the layer 2, 3 cells um, and the layer 4 cells. Uh, the thing that I actually worry about is uh, presynaptic uh, GABA-B channels in, uh, on, the th- in, on the thalamocortical synapse. So uh, by evoking all of this inhibition, I'm actually reducing the probability that vesicles will be released at the thalamocortical synapse. And so that's a problem in, 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 
and to kind of address that or my way of working around that is the fact that I only consider um, the responses that I get a sort of minimal or lower bound on what the input actually is from the LGN because I might have reduced it because of this. So, but as a lower bound estimate, I think that's it's fine for all of my purposes, but I can't say that I think that's exactly what the thalamic input is onto the network. So taking the thalamic input out, stopping it is easier. And, I mean, in the... If you had to, you could just go in there and make a knife cut along with thalamic radiation, I guess. It, people have done that sort of stuff. But you have more sophisticated ways. Well, I think that the easiest way, and it's a way that Horst Baller actually uh, developed, is to just increase the interocular pressure. Uh, and that silences the retina. It's temporary. It's reversible. Um, you can just control the pressure. And, uh, but does it silence the thalamus? It silences the thalamus, yeah. Thalamic neurons have a tendency to take off firing... Rhythms and stuff on their own, but that doesn't uh, interfere with this. It doesn't really interfere with this. You know, the, the retinogeniculate synapse is a very special, powerful synapse. So one presynaptic spike can evoke a postsynaptic spike in a geniculate cell. It's a very, very powerful stimulus. If you, and, and ganglion cells fire at about 20 to 30 spikes per second. And so they are always sort of driving the geniculate at a, at a given rate. And if you take away that... Uh, they become very sad. So one of the complications of that experiment, because that sounds like a simple experiment, I just stop the thalamus. Anything I see that's left is intracortical, except most people's models of what the cortex does is some kind of amplification function on the thalamic input. And so you take that out, and the amplification function can't really be measured because there's nothing to amplify. That's right. So so that's the nice thing about looking at things like, what is the response to a blank screen? Okay, so there is a response to the blank screen. That's that's the first thing, is the cell's not just sitting there doing nothing. There's always some sort of back, what I would call the background rumbling of the cortex always going on. And so you can study things like that. So if we block, uh, if we block the thalamic input, that goes away. It's hard to say any more about that um, then it's necessary to have this background. It's necessary to have the, the uh, feed-forward input to get that background rumbling. I don't know of a better way to sort of dissect that beyond the statement that it's a necessary condition uh, for the response to a blank stimulus. Um, and we would like uh, something a little bit more subtle uh, to be able to determine, um, or manipulation that's a little bit more subtle to be able to determine what are the relative contributions of the cortex versus the thalamus in generating whatever network activity that we have. Cortical rumbling, such an interesting word. Do you still listen to the membrane potential? On I, your I, I still listen to the membrane potential. And all that. It's, it's an old tradition and visual system to listen to the cells. Yes. And it's kind of, people have quit doing it in lots of other places, but it's still done. We still do it in vision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Vision, vision scientists are the friends of audition. <laughs> So I want to get to this idea of threshold nonlinearity a little more. Um, so, and especially with V1, we tend to have this idea that if we know how V1 works, that extrapolates to every sensory cortex and potentially even higher level processing. Um, so, is this a general computational device that you see kind of playing out at higher levels of processing? I mean, is it? I, I think that's a great what question. Is it, what I, is it bias? Does I, it give us? I, I, mean, I used to think that that was true, and um, I'm very skeptical of that idea. Um, uh, quite, quite frankly, I, I don't think. Uh, I, I guess I don't know. But primordial cortex is different than other areas. Is there's no doubt about it. Is far more energetic, for example, 
um, than either auditory cortex or barrel cortex. So I've done some recordings, uh, recording the response to nothing in barrel cortex, recording the response to nothing in auditory cortex, and recording the response to nothing in visual cortex. Um, and uh, I can separate those traces blindly. I know where I am. Barrel cortex is very quiet. Auditory cortex is even quieter and visual cortex is just bouncing around all the time. Okay, so there's some sort of background level of response um, that, that's going on. There's some sort of more rumbling that, that's occurring in visual cortex. But that could be just due to the inputs. So there could be something different about the inputs. And the general computation that's being done in primary visual cortex is, 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 is mimicked in auditory cortex and in barrel cortex. And I would like to think that that's the case. The problem is, is in visual cortex, we've identified all of these neat computations, these response selectivity changes that you observe at different layers. So you have orientation selectivity in layer four, the, and then you get complex cells in layers two, three. And there doesn't seem to be a great analog to either of those transformations in auditory cortex or in barrel cortex. And I think that there's, there's always a frustration. Vision scientists always approach auditory cortex, and they think, well, you know, why haven't they found the simple cells yet? Why, where are the complex cells? Why haven't you identified uh, what the transformation is? And, and I, think, I, I think that takes the perspective that visual cortex is the model system. And I'm just not sure if, if that's the right way to think about um, uh, or approach auditory cortex or barrel cortex. So I, I, I think that there are, are, are a lot of differences. Um, they could still all be due to the feed-forward drive. Um, but I suspect that there that the differences are of a larger magnitude. Than do, do, that, do the differences persist in the higher order visual cortex, or they become more like other corticals? Are they start so this, cytoarchitectonically, the higher order ones look more like regular cortex than V1 does. And mm-hmm. Right, and the, the, so so as you move along the visual stream, we get a systematic change in the selectivity of cells, but it's it's. Um, it's not well understood at all. There's only one area outside of V1 that we think we understand or have a, a good grasp on, and that's MT. And area MT, which which I recorded from a lot as a graduate student, is totally different. It is, I think, it's a primary visual cortex. I don't think of it as a, as a secondary cortex, and the reason is is there's a direct and very fast projection from V1 right to MT. It's in, in layer four. Um, it MT is almost doesn't care about whether this, the animal is anesthetized or what the state of the animal is. It's, it's almost like V1. Um, and clearly it's the case in MT that um, we have a change in the representation of the world. In MT, all the cells are motion-selective, um, whereas, in, and they, for the most part, don't care about what is moving, just whether it's moving in the right direction and at the right speed. But uh, if you look at V4, for example, which is right next to MT, um, it's not clear what the, those cells are doing there. Their orientation is selective. But that orientation selectivity already exists in V1. So, uh, I don't, I wouldn't, I, it's hard to say what those cells are doing. You could ask the same question about V2. Uh, is there a difference between V1 and V2? The differences are very slight. And it's not known what, what is different about, uh, V2 from, from V1. So I, I think that I mean I think you could make the argument that V two is like A one that it's it has very similar selectivities than uh, from its afferent target or from the afferent input um, and that the computation whatever it is is much more subtle than the one that we see in V one 
uh, or in MT. Some people, like in the description of, of uh, there's a wonderful paper from Newsom and Moffin where they did these very difficult paired recordings between primary visual cortex and MT, and they found out that all the, the cortical cells, the uh, primary visual cortex cells that connect to MT are direction selective. And uh, so the question is, is what is MT doing, for example? You, it, it, it already inherits all of its selectivity from primary visual cortex, and it's not clear what, what is happening. And, it, and you, could, you could sort of say, make the same argument about V2. What is it doing? It's inheriting all of its selectivity from primary visual cortex. And so you might think of primary visual cortex, and this is the idea that they espoused, as it is like this mailroom where it's doing all the processing necessary, and I don't believe this, but it could be doing all the processing necessary, and then just shuttling that input, those, those, that, that processed input, to these different streams. Uh, and it's just acting as a mailroom, saying, okay, I've got orientation selectivity, I'm going to send it to V2, I've got motion selectivity, I'm going to send that down the, down the, the dorsal pathway to MT. Um, but all the fundamental transformations occur in V1. That would be nice for the people who work in V1. I don't know, because then it doesn't, it doesn't match the argument that I try to make, which is that V1 is a great model system for the rest of Cortex. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it is, it's an argument that you know, V1 is the only model system. You should <laughs> study right. the rest of Cortex. Is, why even bother? Why even bother? It's the 10% of your brain that you use. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is certainly more energetic, I would say, than the rest of Cortex. But so I want to go back to... to one of the things about the the threshold nonlinearity that um, that you're really focusing on that has another this other aspect that we talked about separating the averaged input and we know what if we knew what each one of those cells did uh, that would be that would be it that's what we need but one of the things that you've really pointed out is that if you have some threshold that's above your average then the only thing that gets you to that threshold is the variations in the, the membrane fluctuations. Then we can't just know what each individual uh, input does because we need to know what the covariations of all those inputs are because they will, they, when they sum up, that will give us the variation in the sum. So now we can now talk about not only do we need to know whether uh, V1 is driven from a feed-forward way versus the recurrent connections in the mean sense. We need to know whether the noise from the thalamus is different from the noise from the coming from the rest of the cortex. And how are those related and how are those coordinated? So in some ways you've just taken the same thing and just made it a lot more complicated. It amplified the thing and made doubled all these debates about feedback. <laughs> and feedback. Well, at least we're not talking about innovation anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that'll come, that'll, come, that'll come next in like 10 years or something. Uh, the noise could be in the inhibitory inputs. Yeah, the correlations right. come, from the, come from, from the inhibition. I mean, so do you, is that, I mean, do you really, that are you, are you kind of... I, I, have a, I have a couple of different thoughts about that. First of all, um, I'm kind of, so, so I use anesthetized animals, and I am kind of concerned uh, that maybe the anesthesia is having a big effect on uh, my responses. In one sense, I'm worried about that. In the other sense, I, I to be frank, I don't really care. Um, I'm studying sort of, it's all a self-contained system. 
I'm, I'm not saying that contrast and variant orientation tuning, for example, is something that helps us with perception or, or anything like that. I'm just trying to use that as a behavior to uh, understand what the functional conductivity is and, and whether or not it exists in the way animals are, or not doesn't really matter to me. Um, it makes a constraint on, on the functional architecture. So, uh, I, but I, I am worried that, um, that uh, maybe the anesthetic is altering what the network activity actually is. I'm sure it is in some way. And I don't really know how to control for that or, or to get rid of that, that artifact. One of the things that's been kind of interesting lately is that um, other groups have been doing dual patch recordings um, and in vivo. And uh, the, it is amazing how correlated the responses of individual cells are. So uh, even cells that have very dissimilar selectivities, you can see in their raw traces that they're just going up and down together, um, that this is a coordinated network activity that's going on. Um, and it is not clear what the source of that that is. Um, as the, the stronger that you... The more strongly you you um, stimulate the cell, the more this coordinated activity gets disrupted. Um, and so with experiments using a bed of nails where you're recording from about 100 cells simultaneously, extracellularly, you can also see these dramatic correlations that exist over very long time scales and scale 500 milliseconds to a second uh, across neurons that don't share spatial selectivity and don't share orientation selectivity or ocular dominance. And... Uh, it is unclear what it, what that what that rumble is all about, um, but it's certainly something that you know we're trying to address. So at least that one factor can be compared across uh, uh, consciousness state. Like, so is there a difference in that degree of global um, synchrony in the absence of input, depending upon whether or not you're anesthetized or away? Well, so I can say uh, I can't. I can't say that I've never tried uh, to change the state of, of the animal. Um, but one thing that you can do is in in primate experiments in, in awake behaving animals, you can ask them to attend or not attend, and ask whether there are, there's a difference in the correlation structure between cells. Um, and John Reynolds has done this, and uh, John Monsell, um, and they both find changes in the correlation uh, between cells. Uh, whether depending on whether you're attending or you're not attending. So if you attend, uh, the cells tend to decorrelate, and if you're not attending, then uh, you find much more correlation between individual cells. So that's one change in state that I think you know we, we can control really well. Um, but it's hard to compare awake versus anesthetized just because of the time difference between between when that you're making the recordings. Of course, the background activity of the cortex. Uh, rumble, I guess, or just sort of something like the EEG is famously dependent on state, and there have been some great intracellular recording experiments from Tim Aviv and this text and Stereot, and the, uh, specifically about that, about the, that background activity. It's the same background activity or somehow related background activity that you're talking about, right? I think it's the same background activity. Yes. Uh, sp- for their work specifically, I mean, I mean, they've been able to relate local field potential EEG really well to, to intracellular recordings. 
Um, the, the, the one little issue there is that um, the recording in areas in which it's not very, it's not very clear how to stimulate the cells from, from externally. And so the nice thing in, in V1 is that we, we have a very clear way in which to change what the input structure is uh, into the neuron to be able to interrupt whatever network activity is going on. But I think it's exactly the same thing as what they, they've been looking at. One of the, the cool things that you've done is it's actually not this, um, uh, you know, you, you talk about it then as a binary thing. So you have this background activity when they're not attending, and then it goes away when they are, right? But so When they get a stimulus. When they get a stimulus. Yeah. But... But uh, what you've shown is that how much it goes away depends on the magnitude of the stimulus. That's right. We can right? So it's not just a stimulus or not, like it's gone or it's not. You can actually, how much of it is happening depends on the stimulus. So maybe if for stimuli that are not just whacking the area of the brain, which we tend to pick the most dominant stimulus, we get the biggest responses. Most of the time when maybe a lot of the cortex is doing what it's doing, it's actually coming back and forth and modulating the degree of this uh, of this background activity and the stimulus is tickling it around and it actually may have some functional thing rather than just coming and going. Uh, and it actually is important about the way that things work because they're kind of modulating, playing around with that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, being able to control the contrast, it's been a nice manipulation to be able to, and also to be, not only to be able to control the contrast, but to determine what Stimulus selectivities are required to be able to find the tuning. I can now draw tuning curves for uh, the low frequency changes and see whether they're orientation tuned or see whether how much they depend upon contrast um, or whichever stimulus dimension that I want to look at. If I want to look at tempo frequency tuning, I can say, well, does does the tempo frequency for the decrease in, in low frequency rumbling, does that match the tempo frequency of the cell that I'm recording from? No, it doesn't. Okay, well, so I learned something there that it doesn't have to actually precisely match uh, whichever cell that I'm recording from. And that, that can give you clues as to where... Um, where this background noise is, is coming from. Um, yeah. So what should we call that background? I like this, the cortical, what should we call it? We call it background noise. Both of those things are total loaded terms. Yeah, I really especially hate the second one. Uh, oh, noise. noise. Yeah. yeah, because you might think it's like recording noise or something. Like it's meaningless or not right. somehow not a signal of any kind. It's just not a visual signal. I mean, that's so it becomes kind of noise right. in the visual scientist parlance, but it's some kind of signal, possibly. Yeah. We'd like to be able to understand. So, back in the 90s, Grinfeld had this amazing paper showing he did this voltage sensor dye experiment where he, he was able to measure the uh, orientation maps in visual cortex and then. And then he and then he stopped the visual stimulus and and he measured this background responses, and they followed they seemed to follow in his paper this coordinated pattern where cells tuned to zero degrees were responsive and cells tuned to forty five degrees and then ninety degrees. It's sort of like the the state of the network was sort of systematically shifting, but into stable states states where you know those cells with the same preference uh, were were responding. We'd like to understand if that's actually true. I mean, we think that there might be some orientation-tuned aspect to it, but m more important might be other dimensions like distance um, across the cortical surface. Yeah. I like I like rumbling for the name, but <laughs> it's so it's so romantic. It's descriptive. It sounds like what it is. 
I just had a final question about um, in the work on ocular dominance. Just the, this idea of developmental um, or development of, of binocularity and how you how you sort of uh, how you these these nonlinearities how they develop over time. Do you do we do we do you have any thoughts on on maybe some how how this network is is set up? Are these transformations setting up this network, or are they intri- are they truly intrinsic properties? First of all, I guess I missed. I, I, Sure. I mean, I think. And are they st- are they stable? Are they because we find that they do change depending on sensory input, right? So they're not really intrinsic in the way that we think of intrinsic properties. Well, so there's the biophysical spike threshold. That's just about that's a nonlinearity. It's associated with the channels of the cell, um, and I think that's static. I may be wrong, but I think that that's probably a static thing. What what does change is the the amount of. Um, uh, rumbling that you have, and and so that's sort of a network phenomenon. So by saying threshold, I actually refer to the combination of both of those two uh, effects. Uh, I'm not certain. So I, I am doing developmental experiments right now to to measure what happens uh, when you do monocular deprivation or or um, invoke some strabismus, um, and uh, I'm not sure. So I know that I can change, I, from those experiments, from those spiking data, we know that we can change the shape of the network. That's, that's true. Um, independent of uh, whether, um, w- what the amplitude of those changes is, you can change the state of the network, but, uh, or, or the shape of the network. But the question is, is how much do you actually change it? By showing these very dramatic changes in ocular dominance that you give monocular deprivation or with strabismus, do, do those represent a fundamental rewiring of cortex? Or is there a much more subtle change that, that's at the heart of this? And if it's a more subtle change, which I would be happy to, either one I would be happy to see, but if it's a more subtle change, um, then perhaps we are more plastic than we think we actually are. Um, and that, that learning doesn't have to be this this very dramatic effect on, on inputs to cells. It can, it can be a very subtle effect. So I know, that, you know, there's, there's some, I know uh, other colleagues that are studying uh, binocularity and plasticity. And one of the things that, that's been shown recently is that, so usually there's thought to be a critical, the standard Hugo Wiesel story, there's a critical period for binocular, binocularity. And once you get past that, then you can't switch. And so if you do reverse search, reverse suture, it doesn't. It doesn't switch. But what's been shown recently is that if you completely silence the input for a while in adults, then you can recover the plasticity for binocular uh, plasticity. And so if you have this structure, if you think about what may be happening, what story that may be happening, if you take away the input, then all the cortex is, is starved for getting some activity. And it starts to, say, lower its threshold or self-excite itself. Now you start to uncover these connections that, or this binocularity that you didn't have that was suppressed. And now you have something to build on again to engage a lot of the plasticity mechanisms to start to bootstrap the system up again to then completely rewire what's happening because you have all this kind of structure that's kind of below threshold. And so you can imagine that this is really a lot of related kinds of things and related to why we can recover so much from stroke and other kinds of things. You get this massive parts of of your brain and the other parts of your brain take over. Well, maybe there's a lot of structure there that's kind of most of the time hidden and not above threshold that you don't see. And then there's a big change that, you know, the the cortex lowers everything and grabs new stuff. And now you have 
other parts of your brain that can start to be rewired again. It's actually amazing when you when you take a look at, at, at cells. So I've been doing some two photon microscopy just to just to look at the cells while I'm recording from them. There are just thousands and thousands of spines on an individual cell. <laughs> what are all those what are all those inputs doing? If it only takes fifteen or twenty presynaptic cells to respond, to evoke a response in the postsynaptic cell, why do you have many, many thousands of spines? What's the point of all of that? And I think I think I think you're absolutely right that there's a whole bunch of stuff that's just sort of below the level um, uh, that we normally look at things. Um, and uh, if we can manipulate that, that, that would be very nice. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Nicholas Preby. It's been great. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. <laughs> 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 <laughs>